Well, good morning. Good morning. Man, grace and peace to you in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that was such a wonderful time of worship, was it not? Thank you to our band. Man, they're amazing. Now, we celebrate good news today that the tomb is still empty. The throne is still occupied. And the king is still coming. And we gather together today to celebrate this truth, celebrate this good news. Uh, to our church family, I say with just great sincerity, I love you. And I'm so thankful to be partnered together in following Jesus with you. And so grateful for how you've loved me and how you love my wife and our kiddos. And uh, we just thank you uh, for letting us be a part of this. And we thank Jesus uh, regularly and often for our partnership in the gospel here at Eagles Landing. And if you're a guest with us, we also want you to know we love you. And uh, we're really glad you're here. Maybe you're just visiting uh, family for the holiday weekend, and we're glad you're here. Perhaps you're a part of our community, and you're a follower of Jesus, but you're currently not a part of a local church. And we want you to know we're glad that you're here, and we'd love to help you learn more about uh, who we are and what we're doing as disciples of Jesus. And perhaps you're here today, and you're not a follower of Jesus. And perhaps you're even here maybe a little skeptical about who this Jesus guy is. And, uh, and for you, we also want you to know, man, we are so glad that you're here. And we're so glad that you're learning. And we hope that you'll come back and that you'll uh, let us uh, continue to teach you and show you how beautiful this king is. Because Jesus, uh, you know, we, we say he's life-changing. And I, I've said a lot of my own life, too. I've begun to, to coin the phrase more of he's life-giving. He's the giver of life. And we want you to have this life in Christ and, uh, and to know more about him. We're going to celebrate him today, right? Uh, if, as we get started, I was talking to my wife last night about this, and I just wanted to say this to us as we prepare to open the scriptures. We all know that this week is Thanksgiving, right? And um, so for some of us, that means our kids are out of school, which is kind of cool, <laughs> but it also means that like now they're here all the time, and we're kind of like, what are we going to do with them all the week? And, uh, or, or perhaps you are getting prepared to travel, because it's Thanksgiving week and you're trying to make sure you got all the suitcases packed up and all the stuff and get ready to make the travel plans. Or perhaps you're the one who's going to like host people in your home this week. And so you're trying to make sure the house is clean. And do you have enough chairs? Do you have enough tables? Do you have enough food? All this stuff. And it's really easy in this moment and in this week to kind of come with a lot of tenseness already because of what's about to happen this week. And if that's you today, I pray that for these next few minutes as we open the scriptures, that for each of us, we would just come and rest at the feet of a good king. That we would slow down for a moment and just have our hearts opened and our ears opened to sit at the feet of a good king and to learn more about what it means to love and to live like him as we follow him. We're going to be continuing our series in David. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open with me or turn it on, and uh, go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 23 today, and to catch us up in what's going on, because we're skipping over a few chapters, uh, David has now officially become the king of all of Israel. So that's good news. Things are going well. And he has conquered the Philistines, and he has established Jerusalem as the political center of his kingdom. 
And now his game plan, what he would like to do is to bring the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God, which was considered to be God's presence. He wants to bring the Ark into Jerusalem so that Jerusalem would also serve as the spiritual center of his rule and also as a demonstration to show his community that he does not want to rule without God. He wants to rule with him. And so he's moving the Ark from where it was into Jerusalem. And in the first attempt, uh, things did not go very well. Uh, if you're familiar with the story, you know that David comes with a lot of excitement and they're moving the ark, but they're not doing it according to God's instructions for how the ark is meant to be moved. And so in the process of all their excitement, uh, things go very bad and a couple of uh, deaths happen along the way. And that kind of makes David nervous. And so David halts and he stops and he tells the, the community, hey, we're going to let the, the ark live with this guy named Obed-Eden who is presumably the closest living Levite to where they were. And so David and the Israelites go back to Jerusalem, and three months pass. And in the course of those three months, the house of Obed-Edom is richly blessed and prosperous. And so David uh, looks at this, and he says, okay, it looks like the Lord's anger has relented. And it's a good thing that the, where the presence of the Lord is, there's a lot of blessing and good things, so let's go try this again. Let's go try to move the ark into Jerusalem, but let's, let's do it this time in accordance with God's instructions. And so David gets his people back together. They go and get the ark, and they're bringing it into Jerusalem the way God intended it to be carried. Right? Everybody good? Yeah. All right. So we're getting in verse 12. I'm going to read through our entire text and then pause for a moment of prayer, and then we'll spend the remainder of our time just walking through this text together. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his female servants' females, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, 
It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Let us pray together. O merciful Father, as we open your word, by the power and goodness of your spirit, reveal to us Jesus, your son, and transform our own hearts so that we might learn to love and live like him together. May Christ be exalted and his church edified. May he increase, and may we decrease. In Christ we pray these things. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at this text today in kind of three sections, three parts, three movements of the text. Verses 12 through 16, verses 17 through 19, and then verses 20 through 23. And, and the way we're going to couch this today is there's this question in this text of what does a good king look like? And what does a good king do? And perhaps you, you heard that in the text, there, that David, who is now the king, is operating and he's doing things in, in a certain manner. And his wife, who we should note, is not referred to in the text as the wife of David, but she's referred to as the daughter of Saul, because the biblical author is making a point that she's acting more like her father, who was probably not the, the best character to follow. Uh, and she has an idea in her head of what a good king looks like. And David's not doing it. And it raises a question for you and me today. What does a good king look like? And how can this text help us think more fully about King Jesus, the ruler of heaven and earth? So in these first few verses, verses 12 through 16, one of the things that I pray we would see, our first kind of point for the day, is that a good king walks amongst his people. A good king lives and walks amongst his community that he's ruling over. Well, note in verse 15 that it says that David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord. So, so David is not doing this thing by himself, but rather he's in the context of the community. And it's, it's a very large festive event that the community of God's people are celebrating the presence of God moving into their community along with their king. And David's dancing and celebrating. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But the issue here is that Michal, as we see in verse 16, is not with the house of Israel, right? Where is she? Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window. So she, 
again, having her own view of what royalty really looks like, is not going to hang out with the lowly, with the ordinary, with the peasants. Real royalty remains in the king's quarters and is dignified. It's not going to rub shoulders with the ordinary. And that's going to make some issues between her and David because, again, McCall has her own understanding of what a good king looks like, and David's not operating in that way. But David is a picture of what a good king looks like. He doesn't see himself as greater than his people, but he lives and he moves and he operates within the context of the community that he's leading and ruling over. And not only that, David is also celebrating with the people. We should, we should certainly take note of this, that as the ark is coming in, there's a lot of dancing, there's a lot of singing, there's a lot of celebration. It's uh, maybe like a giant community conga line, and they're all celebrating that the presence of God is moving into the community. So we see in verse 12 that the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's house, and we're going to move the ark. And so David went and he brought the ark of God with the house, and he was rejoicing. He's making sacrifices along the way. After the first six steps to consecrate the trip, this is a trip declared to in the honor of God Almighty. And as they're, communi- as they're walking in verse 14, that David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And there's a few things here that can help us as we think about worship. And when we think about worship, first and foremost, is we need to be reminded that it's not just singing. Singing is a part of worship. Worship really is a lifestyle, Right? There's a few things in these few verses that I think can really help us when we think through what real worship looks like. And one of the first ones that we have to grasp to really worship with with authenticity and with fullness of self is that we can't detach worship from living a life of obedience to King Jesus. Remember, if you go back in this text, we didn't read this today, but if you flip back just a few verses... The Israelites tried to bring the ark in once, but they brought it in a way that they were neglecting to live in obedience to the way God told them to live. And they're shouting and they're celebrating, but they're walking in disobedience. And that's not honoring to God, right? And so when we think about worship then, and if we were just to talk specifically about this moment right now, if we talk specifically about the worship gathering, which is what this is, it's a gathering of worshipers who've come to worship, we can come into this room and we can sing really loud and we can put our hands up really high and we can dance. I, I, I have a tendency to sway. So you see, I just kind of do this, kind of back and forth. But if we're not following Jesus Monday through Saturday, then our worship comes in here and it's not the fullness of what God wants from his people. Our lives matter. Jesus is a king and he has commanded his people to follow him in obedience. And so when we think about things like loving our enemies or things like humbly serving others or the command Jesus gives to forgive But the commands Jesus has in regards to greed or in regards to lust, the way of life, if we neglect to practice the way of Jesus Monday through Saturday, then we can come in here and we can sing and we can shout, but in a lot of ways it's in vain. 
True worship, the worship that's pleasing to our God, flows out of a heart that's in allegiance and loyalty to King Jesus. And to be clear here with that, that doesn't mean we do it perfectly, right? Like, we, we still fall prey to sin, and I still fall prey to sin, and I, and I need God's grace daily in my life. But the life of a disciple of Jesus is always one where we're stumbling forward because his grace is greater and his spirit is moving us. And so first and foremost, when we're going to worship, we have to do that first by just following Jesus day by day and living in obedience to his way of life and practicing the way of Jesus. Another thing we can see about worship in these few verses is the focal point and the object of worship. Right? The focal point and the object of worship for David and for this community was the presence of God. The focal point wasn't their traditions. The focal point wasn't that it's happening the way they want it to. But the focal point was that God was with them. And he is what it's all about. That when we worship, we're doing it in a way where we are surrendering it all to the one who is worthy of it all. King Jesus is the most beautiful, loving, caring, compassionate, holy, righteous king ever. And he is worthy of our worship. And we need to keep him as the object and the focus of our worship. It's very easy, and I am just as prone to this as the next person, but it's very easy to even begin to, to worship the way I want to worship. And maybe even worship me in the process. But I need to be clear that day by day, my worship is aimed at the one who is worthy of worship. And that's him. And so we have this picture in these first few verses of a good king, David, celebrating God with his people, walking amongst their midst, celebrating that God is with them, now walking in, in alignment with the truthfulness and the commands of God. And they're bringing the ark into the community of Jerusalem. So a good king walks amongst his people. Second, verses 17 through 19, is that a good king will sacrificially serve his people. A good king sacrificially serves his people. I, I am a, a bit of a Bible dork sometimes. Uh, but something that, that Jesus has used in my life now for, for a couple years, and I want you to, to stay with me for, for just a second, because you might sound like, what is he talking about? But I promise, this like in the last few years, Jesus has really used this in my life. Ask this question, like, what does it really mean to rule? Like, what is it, why is it good news that Jesus is king? Have you ever thought about that? Like, why is it good news? What does it mean to rule biblically? And... There's a book by Matthew Bates called The Gospel Precisely where he addresses this. And I found it to be so helpful that in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, uh, God actually gives us a picture of what ruling looks like. If you're familiar with Genesis 1, verse 26 and verse 28, that God creates these image bearers and he gives them dominion, right? Which means they're to rule creation. But what does that mean? Again, like, what does it mean to rule? And in Genesis 2, verse 15, it says that God, uh, the Lord God put the man in the garden of Eden, to work it and to keep it. And that's what ruling looks like. Working and keeping. Uh, Bates will argue that that means serving and safeguarding. 
What does a real king do? What does it mean to rule? It means first and foremost to serve what you're overseeing, to serve it, to give it what it needs so that it prospers, so that it grows, so that it's healthy, to serve it, and then a good king will safeguard it. He will protect his people. So to rule is to serve. And what's David doing in our text right here? Go back to verse 17. They bring the ark into the community. They bring inside the, the tent where David pitched it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, a burnt offering is, is, an, is an offering for atonement. And a peace offering is an offering for gratitude. And it's very interesting in this text that David is presented as a priest. He's look, he looks like a priest king. He's wearing a linen ephod. Uh, he's making priestly duties by offering sacrifices. He's blessing the people. So David is operating in this text like a priest king. And he's serving, right? He sacrifices for the good of his people. Again, again, bringing atonement between their sins, between God Almighty, offering gratitude and the peace offerings. And when he's finished in verse 18, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and he distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each. And then they all departed. So what is he doing? He's serving He's serving his people. And here's the point. A good king, a good king doesn't look at his people and say, how can you serve me? I'm in the throne room. I'm what it's all about. And you exist in my kingdom to meet my needs and to serve me. But a good king, a good king looks at his people and says, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? And he takes their needs upon himself, and he finds ways to meet those needs on their behalf. That's what a good king does. And David, in this text, is again looking like a priest king, offering atonement for the sins of his community in the presence of God, serving the the peace offering and, and, and food of gratitude. So the people in the community can now live in the presence of God. And so a good king serves sacrificially. That's what a good king does. Now third, verses 23-23, is that a good king remains faithful to God above all else. A good king will remain loyal. A good king will remain allegiant to God. And verses 23-23 is really the, the showdown of this verse, of this whole text. Remember, it's Michal who doesn't like the way David's acting. He's, he doesn't like a king. He's undignified. And this is finally the showdown between the two of them. And how's it going to happen? What's going to happen in this moment? Verse 20, he, he returned to bless his household. But the daughter of Saul, again, notice, she's not referred to as the wife of David in this text, although she's his wife. She's referred to as the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David, and she says, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. This is very sarcastic in the language. We should hear it as a very sarcastic comment. Essentially, she's looking at him and she's saying, you're supposed to be the king. You're supposed to be dignified and above all of this other stuff, but you look like a shameless, vulgar fellow. And she belittles David because, again, he doesn't fit the picture that she has for what a king looks like. And David responds to this in verse 21. 
It was before the Lord. Remember the object of his worship. I'm not doing this for other people. It's before him who chose me above your father and above all the house. It's such an interesting text. Remember, if you remember Saul, in 1 Samuel chapter 8 is when Israel rejects God as king. They reject God as king. They say, we want to have a, God, we want to have a king like all the other nations. And God says, okay. And they choose Saul. And if you, do you remember like, what the defining attribute of Saul is to be the king? He's handsome. Right? He's handsome. He looks like a king. He looks great. And so they choose him. And who does God choose to be king? David, the shepherd boy. That even when Samuel shows up to ask Jesse about his sons, even his own dad leaves him out of it. Because the biblical narrative continues to present over and over again that God exalts the humble. And here is David, the lowly shepherd boy, exalted to be the prince over Israel, and he's excited about it. And he says, I'm going to celebrate before the Lord. Verse 22, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. They say, I'll humiliate myself even more than this, and I will be abased or seen low in your eyes. He says, your view of this, I, I am willing to go down to be, to be seen in a derogatory sense from you as long as I'm remaining faithful and allegiant to God Almighty. And David's fine with that. And as a result, verse 23, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the end of her death, or to the day of her death, which is kind of one of the points of this section of the story, that she has disqualified herself from having the heir to the kingdom. And David has presented himself as a good king, and now it's going to set him up for 2 Samuel 7, which is a really, really, really important part of the Bible, where we have the Davidic covenant, right? So that's kind of the point. Like, David is this humble Shepherd, king, serving as a priest, walking amongst his people, serving his people sacrificially, not willing to, to turn his back on God, even when he's getting stones thrown at him from his own wife. And because of this, he's, he's presented again in the text as a good king. Now, who does that look like? Yeah. looks like Jesus, does it not? Because, again, this story is about him. And this whole story is pointing us forward to him. And we should see him all over this text. Because Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the true king who walks amongst his people. I find, I, there's a text in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 55. And I've always found it to be so fascinating. Jeremiah is praying, and he makes this comment. He says, I called out to you from the depths of the pit. Now, for whatever reason, in my own mind, when I hear the phrase depths of the pit, it's like, you know, I'm not just at the pit, but I'm like beneath the pit, right? And in my mind, for whatever reason, I think about the ocean, and it's pretty deep, right? It goes really far down. But then there's parts of the Earth's crust at the bottom of the ocean where it's like a crack, and it goes even further down, and it's like really weird animals down there we've never seen. And when he's crying out to him, he says, I'm calling out for you from the depths of the pit. I'm, I'm not at the bottom of the ocean. I'm in the crack that goes further down. I'm at the lowest point I could possibly be. And the response back 
in that text, it says, and you heard my cry and you came near to me. I want you to think about that. Jeremiah cries out, I'm at the lowest place I could possibly be and I'm crying out for help and the response back is not, well then work your way out of there and get back up here to me. But the response is, I'll come down and meet you where you are. King Jesus is God Almighty incarnate. And surely, right, if God steps into creation, he's going to see us in all of our rebellion and in all of our sin and all of our filth and kind of stay back a little bit the way McCall wanted to stay in the tower, right? And no. When we read through Jesus' story, I was talking about this with Jeremy Robbins this last week. He brought up the fact that, you know, Jesus is eating with the Pharisees in Luke chapter 7, and this lady shows up, and she's weeping, and she's washing his feet with her tears. And the Pharisees say, if this guy was an actual prophet, he'd never let this lady touch him. Because that's what their view of a king looks like. He doesn't mess around with the lowly. Jesus is the true king. He's the king that wants to hang out and have dinner with Zacchaeus the guy that nobody wants to hang out with. Jesus is the true king who goes and parties with the sinners and the tax collectors after he causes Matthew. You know what that means for you and me? It means that he doesn't see us and stay repelled to go hang out in the king's quarters, but he sees you and me in our everyday ordinary lives and all the struggles and the things that we are falling apart with, and he moves into where we are. And you might be here right now, and your world is falling apart. And you are saying to yourself, surely I have sinned enough, I've done enough wrong, he's through with me. But you see, Jesus is a good king who walks amongst his people. And he hasn't given up on you. And his grace is greater than our sin. And so he moves them, and he comes near to the downcast. He comes near to the brokenhearted. Are you brokenhearted today? He's with you. He's a good king. He's a good king who sacrificially serves his people. And you see, David, the priest, who offered a sacrifice. Jesus is the king priest who is the sacrifice. John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is Jesus who comes and he's willing to be sacrificed. Why? Because we have rebelled. We have all sinned. We have all brought the contamination of sin into this world. And the king, out of his love and his grace, goes and he gives his life as a sacrifice for his people. And in Matthew 20, there's a text. And remember all this stuff about serving, serving, right? Matthew chapter 20 is a text where James and John are fighting over who's going to be the best in the kingdom, right? Who's going to sit at his right hand and his left hand? And all the other disciples get mad at, at James and John. They're all fighting. And, uh, and Jesus is going like, you guys, are, you don't get it. The greatest in the kingdom are the servants, the humble. And then guess what he says? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Listen, church, that is kingdom language. Why? Because that's what a king does. A good king serves his people. And we are all a people in great, dire need. For we have all rebelled 
And left to ourselves, we stand rightfully condemned by a holy God. And yet Jesus, the better king, goes and he dies as the sacrifice that atones the wrath of God so that you and I can have healing and peace through his wounds. He's a king. And we talked about that Wednesday night class, wherever y'all were in there, right? That, that the cross, when we look at the cross, it's not a defeat. The cross is what it looks like when God becomes king. He's enthroned on a cross. He's sacrificed as the king of the Jews because it's through his wounds we've been healed. He does all of this, again, being faithful, faithful to what God's called him to. How many times do we see Jesus and we hear Jesus in the garden, not my will be done, but yours. And it's because he remained faithful that you and I, when we're not faithful, we have hope. It's because he remained faithful that when you and I fall again, there's grace to lift us up. He is a good king. He has conquered sin. He has conquered the grave. He is the wounded victor. God promised one was going to crush the serpent's head. And he did it. And his name is Jesus. And so wherever you're at today, I pray that you would look to him. And again, just rest with him. He doesn't leave us alone. He walks with his people. He serves his people. He meets us where we are. And even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. He strengthens our hearts. And, and the more fully we move into this gospel, right? because the gospel, again, is not just the doorway into Christianity. We, we want to move into it. The more fully we move into this and we, we experience and rest upon this redeeming grace, the more our own hearts are tuned to celebrate and to worship and to sing and to honor him. And David's bringing the presence of God into the community of Jerusalem. Jesus is the presence of God. And he walks with us. We have a good king. Let's follow him.